All right. Well, welcome to uh, Providence. I'm so excited to share the word with you. Uh, and Jeremy, uh, thank you so much for that testimony. That really kind of teed it up for me. So uh, I will be quoting that later on in the sermon. That was amazing. Um, so yeah, today's our, our last, second to last uh, Sunday in the book of Ephesians. Uh, I will be preaching out of uh, the passage that Sherry just read about the armor of God. But next week, Hunter is going to uh, kind of close, put things together for us uh, with the last sermon with an emphasis on prayer. Uh, but what we want to do is we don't want to just jump to the next uh, series uh, without really taking time as a family, as a church, uh, to really pause and consider what has God said to us? What is God doing in our midst uh, that we need to share with each other as part of the value of loving God together? And so what we're going to do next Sunday is, uh, like I said, Hunter's going to preach a short sermon, and really the rest of the time, most of the sermon will be like a testimony of the word type of format. So what we're asking is that you, this week really is a spiritual exercise that we're going to do together as a family, that you would uh, take time to read the letter uh, of Ephesians. Uh, it should really take you like 15, 20 minutes max if you just read it in one sitting. Um, if you miss some, some sermons or a couple of uh, sermons, just take time to listen to those sermons as well. And really, more importantly, if you're a part of our community group, we really encourage you this week to make that maybe the part of the discussion, to really, as a group, talk about what is God saying to you personally and share out of that. And then our desire is that out of those testimonies that you're going to share in community group, that you guys would affirm one or two testimonies that uh, the, rest of the, the rest of the congregation needs to hear. So that's what we're going to do next Sunday. Please, please take it seriously. And uh, we just believe we've done this before, and it truly turns out to be one of the best things that we do to kind of finish the series and really work through the material together and be encouraged together. So that's what we're going to do next week. Hunter, did I miss anything? We got it? Hit it off? Perfect. All righty. Oh, sorry about that. Let's go back to this. Okay, so uh, today I get to, I have the privilege of preaching on the armor of God. This is obviously a, a very familiar passage. If, if you grew up in church, if you as a child went to uh, Sunday school classes uh, or heard, you know, just heard a lot of sermons, inevitably you have been taught and you have heard sermons on the armor of God. So this is a very familiar sermon, uh, passage, and Usually, at least the way that in, in the way I was taught to me through my Sunday school teachers or sermons that I've heard in the past is really usually this passage is taken as like an additional teaching. You know, since chapter three, uh, chapter four, I mean, uh, we've been kind of like applying different things that Paul said foundationally in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and most of the time, the way at least it was taught to me is this is just an additional teaching on really the spiritual struggles that we're all going to face as Christians in our quest for holiness. Um, most of the sermons that I've heard uh, on this passage refer to the armor of God as like a, a mass-produced set of weapons and protective gear that God makes available to us as solo spiritual warriors to help uh, optimize our performance on the battlefield. It's usually something like that. And so when Hunter uh, um, asked me a few weeks back uh, if I could preach uh, sometime in the month of October, I had no idea what passage was going to be given to me. And so when he told me I was going to be preaching on the armor of God, uh, to be honest, I was like, oh, shoot, i got to preach on that passage. I mean, everybody knows it. 
And in my head, I just immediately had this dread uh, because I do not want to preach a moralistic sermon. And I realized that I was going to have to do a lot of study because um, the stuff that I had been taught before, I just knew my heart was not, it was not really, I, I didn't feel at the guts of what Paul is trying to say. But I had never really taken the time, to be honest, to really do a study. So uh, even though I had a little bit of dread in the beginning, I really feel very excited about sharing with you, I think, what God uh, is going to unpack for us um, today. So the biggest thing that I learned as I kind of dug deep into this is that this passage, these 10 verses, are actually not just an additional uh, set of teachings. They're actually the climax of the entire letter, believe it or not. Uh, and so what I have, I, Matt, when he preached uh, a couple of weeks ago, he did something that actually I'm, I'm going to copy his uh, thing. Again, this is not meant for you to read all together, uh, but really on the left column I have different phrases, uh, verse by verse, that are in those 10 verses. And then I'm showing you exactly the same exact wording, the same exact verbal link to all kinds of other passages all throughout the rest of the letter. So you can see everywhere you see blue, this, those key things are found in other parts of the letter. Um, so you can see there's just a lot of correlation there. And a lot of uh, uh, people that have spent a lot of time uh, meditating and studying the book of Ephesians really believe that this is the climactic imperative of the letter. Um, Ephesians 1.10, uh, Paul says there that, Christ uh, has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And I believe that that's how Paul starts the letter and everything else he says. He unpacked for us how the church, how we as the church are playing a gigantic role, the primary role in actually helping Christ bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And so this passage that we're going to uh, uh, be spending time uh, this morning, in my mind, and what I really believe is, is really the key, the climax of how Christ is going to do all those things. So my goal this morning is really simple. It's just to resituate the context of this passage, of this metaphor of the armor of God, uh, within the meta-narrative of the scriptures. And I have two simple points that I'm going to uh, use as my scaffolding for the sermon. The first part of the sermon is going to be, who are we fighting? And we're going to get very, very clear and specific about that. And number two then, once we know who we're fighting then, the second point is, then how do we fight? Who are we fighting and how do we fight? So Ephesians chapter... Um, 6, verse 10 to 12, if you have your Bibles open, uh, let's read the first uh, couple of verses there. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the mighty power, his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So right out of the gate, what I want to point your attention to is that Paul is saying that evil doesn't take the form of flesh and blood. Now, it is clear if you read the New Testament that Paul had tons of struggles with flesh and blood. He had tons of struggles with people, right? He himself here in Ephesians is actually writing a letter 
from prison, okay, where he has been falsely accused, where he has been falsely imprisoned. Uh, if you read the book of Acts uh, over and over, he has been stoned. He has been beaten. He says he, was, he has been left, to, left, left for dead uh, multiple times. He has been oppressed. But even though he has been oppressed and all these things that he has uh, experienced from other humans, he says that they are not the source of evil. They are not the source of evil. The root cause of evil, he says here in this passage, are the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. These are the invisible forces that are behind every evil that we see today. So when we see evil in the physical world, when we see racism, when we see uh, drug abuse, when we see war, when we see theft, when we see corruption, we can be sure that behind them stands beings, stands supernatural beings that we cannot see, but they are more than human, more than just natural. And so as I was thinking about this, is, uh, if you were here last week, many of you, uh, I heard many comments about Josh's sermon last week that was amazing. And it's really, this is the flip side of what Josh said last week. Do you remember last week, uh, the sermon was around children and parents and employers and, and, uh, and bosses, right? And the main point that Josh was saying is that behind all of them, the reason why we are to treat, to treat them with kindness, the reason why children are to obey their parents is that behind them stands Jesus. Right? right? This is the same thing that Paul is saying, but now on the flip side. He's saying behind every evil in this world, behind every injustice in this world, it's not just a human. There is something that's happening on the back end. And so... Um, so... Let's just be honest about this, right? This is really hard for us to really kind of wrap our brain around. We can say it, but as modern people, uh, we have trouble with the supernatural. We have trouble understanding this idea that behind the evil, there is something supernatural. There's a supernatural power. However, this is not something that most people in third world countries struggle with, okay? If you, like me, if you come from a third world country, this actually, the supernatural, the spiritual world actually help us, helps make sense for us of what actually we are experiencing in our realities. Um, if, you, if you listen to the, the Spanish radio station in town, uh, you cannot listen for more than 30 minutes without hearing an advertisement, an 800 number for somebody that's doing witchcraft, somebody that's offering, uh, if, if you think your spouse is cheating on you, Call this number, and we will help you figure out exactly who that is. If you feel that somebody has put a curse on you, they literally say this in Spanish in the radio, uh, call this number, and we will reverse the curse. And if somebody did something wrong to you, we'll put a curse on them. Just call this number and pay us a little bit of money. Okay? This is, and, and this is every 30 minutes you cannot listen without listening, hearing this. So my assumption is that our Latino brothers and sisters are spending a lot of money calling these numbers because they just keep doing advertising. But the reason for this is because for us, uh, and I know it's the same is true of our brothers from Africa and anybody that, that has come from a third world country, is this is normal for us. Talking about the spiritual world and being aware of all of that comes natural to us. But for most of us who have a Western worldview, this is a foreign concept to us. Why is that? The reason for that is that we have a very materialistic view of things. And so with, material, with the materialistic worldview, 
if everything is material, if everything has to be, everything is what we see, then it's, we should be able to then get behind the root cause of what it is. We should be able to actually figure out what is causing that thing that we're seeing. And so if everything has a natural explanation, then we can then go ahead and fix it. So oh, since the 1800s, we have put as humans lots of energy to try to figure out, hey, what are the root causes of war? What are the root causes of crime and greed and every ill that our society has? We have been working really hard to understand what are the natural causes for each one of those. And lots of proposals have been put forward in the last hundred, couple hundred years to fix everything that's broken with our world. And so over the last couple of centuries, uh, if you look at the sciences, uh, psychology, uh, the medical field, the engineering field, uh, economics. We've done a lot of work in economics to figure out what is the best economic system that's going to help everybody flourish. Uh, education. All of these things have been, uh, and, and, and really there has been, a, uh, back in the 1800s, there was a huge amount of optimism about all of these things. A lot of breakthroughs were taking place, and we really believed that we could actually solve all the problems of the world. But you go into the early 1900s, right, and we have what? World War I, right? Then we have the Great Depression. And then we move on to World War II. And all of a sudden, uh, a society like Germany, right before World War II, was one of the most sophisticated, educated, advanced societies in the world. And out of that society, we get death camps where millions of Jews are killed. How do we explain that? We've tried all kinds of different economic uh, models. Marxism, for a while, thought, was thought by many to be the solution to the problems of the world. And that ended up killing more people than anything else. Socialism, capitalism, right? Literacy. Lots of efforts have been done around the world to educate every child, to help everybody read and write, and to have a better education. And then, in the late uh, 1900s, early 2000s, the internet. And social media, remember like just like 15 years ago, we thought social media was going to change the world, was going to bring everybody together, was going to connect everybody. There will be no more injustices in this world because everything will be in the light. And what do we got now? A mess, right? <laughs> so bottom line, what, I wanna, what I'm showing you here is that if that is the only solution that we have, that if, the, if, if your worldview says that we can solve all these problems, all we need to know is just what are the natural causes, and we can then go after that, we're going to fail, right? And this answer is wearing thin on everybody. Hardly anybody. I don't know many people that are very hopeful about our abilities today to solve the problems of the world, Amen. right? But here's the beautiful thing, guys. The Bible, the worldview of the Bible has no problem with this. We have the best answer to the state of data that we have. We have the best answer to what the real situation is. The book, the Bible, uh, has the answers to this conundrum. And so what I want to say to you now is uh, that even though the Bible has the answer, because we live in a Western worldview society, even we as Christians have to work really hard. We have to work really hard to understand the biblical worldview. And so when you read, uh, when you read the Moses, and when you read Paul, and when you hear the words of Jesus, 
you immediately realize that they're viewing things from a very different perspective than we uh, today. And so we have a built-in blind spot in our worldview that makes it super easy for us to uh, ignore the biblical reality. So we need to learn to adopt and understand the biblical worldview. And to be honest, the longer you've been in the United States, the more work you're going to have to do to, um, to, uh, to embrace it and understand it. So what I want to do right now is, uh, in the next few minutes, what I want to do is I actually want to unpack for you what this biblical worldview is of what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. And I, I got to tell you, our community group um, in, back in 2020 during the pandemic, we did a full study on spiritual warfare. Heather, I don't know if you remember that. Uh, and uh, we found... We did a whole bunch of reading and some lectures that we, uh, we listened to, and everybody in our group agreed that there was a particular lecture that we listened to that was really just eye-opening for us. And uh, it was really out of uh, a church called Bridgetown, and they have a sermon series called Fighting the Word, the Flesh, and the Devil. Uh, and if you want to take a picture of that, I just really encourage you to go. I, it will, you will not be disappointed. This is, this is a 45-minute uh, interview uh, called God, the Gods, and the Supernatural Backdrop of the Bible. And I would say if there's one interview that just really opened up for us as a community group, uh, a, a more biblical understanding of the spiritual world, it was this interview right here. Um, and just yesterday, uh, I really, I, I knew I was spending way too much time. Uh, I've been thinking about this stuff for the last two years, and I just saw this as an opportunity to like review all this material. And I probably spent about five, six hours like just digging into this, knowing that I was only going to speak about it for like five minutes. I just couldn't stop. This is just so uh, just captivating for me. So I'm just going to, I basically have to be very ruthless in cutting a whole lot of stuff. Uh, but if you listen to that, that will send you well on your way um, to really understanding what I'm going to talk about. Okay, so um, the first thing that we need to understand is all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1.1, it says, we all know this, in the beginning God created, right? Okay, right away we are introduced to a word that brings out a lot of trouble for us in the Hebrew. And that word is the word Elohim, okay? So God in Genesis 1.1 is referred to as Elohim. The problem with that word is that if you keep reading the Bible... That word Elohim is used of all kinds of different beings, not just God. Now, you wouldn't know that just from reading the English, but that's all right there in the Hebrew. So that word is actually used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. And, you know, a lot of times it's referred to, you know, to, to Yahweh, the God, creator God, right? And, 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 and when you usually read it in the context, you're like, oh, yeah, that's referring to God. It talks about that. That, that God is the Elohim of Elohims, right? In the, you, you read that, that, that he's the Lord of Lords, right? So in the context, you go like, okay, I know who he's talking about, right? This is the one Elohim. Uh, it also talks about that there is no Elohim besides Yahweh, okay? So these are references that are not problematic for us. That all makes sense. The problem is that Elohim is also used of in Exodus 12 of the gods of Egypt. And in, in, in the prophets, it talks about the gods of Moab, the gods of Babylon, and they're referred to as Elohims as well. 
uh, in the book of Samuel, there's a really problematic passage where, uh, where people are, are doing divination and they're, and they're, um, they're uh, um, the word is that they are uh, trying to contact spirits of the dead. Okay? And those spirits of the dead that they're, con- they're trying to get information from are called Elohims as well. Okay? So, so that's a little problematic. What do we do with that? Well, if we are honest, uh, well, most of the time, we don't even see the problem because in the English, we don't know that that's a, you know, what's happening in the Hebrew. So that's, you know, that happens there. Uh, but I remember in seminary just really being like bothered, like, and I just couldn't figure out exactly what to make of that. I would just kind of ignore the problem uh, and just keep going. Uh, but for example, in the Ten Commandments, we read uh, commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. God is saying, you shall have no other Elohims before me. Uh, you should not bow down to any other gods or any other Elohims or idols. And so what do we do with that, right? Especially now that we know that that same word can be used of all kinds of different beings. Well, if I'm honest with you, what I would do is I would just kind of like smuggle the word false. Or like, oh, yeah, I, should, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have any false gods before me. Right, because the minute I put the word false in there, all of a sudden that being becomes, it's a non-entity. Something is false, it doesn't really exist. Right, and so in my mind, that's how I would actually solve the problem. These are all false gods, yep, I should not. And and, you know, we would just kind of talk about, you know, what are some things that maybe I'm putting above God, like maybe my work is a false god, or I'm putting relationships, or money, or power. So those are like my false idols, my false gods, okay? Why am I doing that? Because of my Western worldview. I, I, I literally would read the Old Testament and read about all these gods and be like, oh, these are just like, they don't really exist. They don't really have any power. Yeah, the Israelites are so stupid <laughs> that they actually believe that, right? I would, you know, and that's how probably most of us handle these types of texts. But, what the biblical worldview is telling us is that those Elohims are actual, literal, real beings. The, but when the Bible talks about f- false gods, they're not saying that they don't exist. What they're saying, the reason why they're false is that they are not in the same category as the chief Elohim. That's, so in that sense, they are false. But it doesn't mean that they don't have power, that they don't exist. So that's the first thing that I really want you to understand that all the Elohims in the Bible have one thing in common, and that is that they're all spiritual beings that really exist. Okay, the second thing that I want you to see is that God has set up this universe to be controlled, to be uh, dominated by created beings. And, and this is not because God needs help, right? We all know God doesn't need help. God is God. He's sovereign. He, he, he can run this whole world, the universe, without any help. But God is so generous that in the biblical worldview, he wanted to share his power with other created beings. And so if you've been here at Providence, we always talk about, you know, in Genesis 1.28, we have no problem when God creates Adam and Eve in the physical world, in the earthly world, in the Garden of Eden, that God says, what does he say, Right? He says, let, let Adam and Eve have dominion over all creation. 
right? We have no problem with that. We understand, okay, God delegated authority and power to us as humans to basically expand the Garden of Eden. Whatever created chaos is there. We are, our, our job is to create civilizations and to expand the presence of God across the face of the earth, okay? So that's not new data for us. That's not a new concept for us. But what's easy for us to miss is that the same thing is happening in the spiritual realm. The same thing is happening there. And so the Bible tells us that at the moment that of creation, when God was creating heaven and earth, there was a group of Elohims present at the creation. So, and this is all throughout the scriptures. I can only just give you one real quick. At the end of Job, familiar passage for most of us, when God is confronting Job in his sin, he's saying to Job, says, hey, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Where were you while the morning stars sang together and all the Angels, the, the, the NIV translates that as angels, is literally sons of Elohim shouted for joy. Right? So, so we see there that as God was creating, when it says God created, Elohim created, there was, other, there was the chief Elohim, and then there's other Elohims present, singing for joy, shouting. It was like the, the, the picture there is almost like the, the, the cheering, the fans cheering uh, uh, in a sporting event. So in the same way that God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth, God gave these Elohims dominion over the heavenly places. And this is a really important thing for us to understand. So for us, when we, when we uh, you know, with our Western eyes, we, we, we talk, the Bible talks about the sun and the stars. Okay, to us, they're like, you know, masses of burning gas, right? That's what the sun, that's all the sun is to us. If you were an ancient Near Eastern person, uh, pretty much every civilization, every culture, whenever they talked about the stars, to them, they were like created, they were like, they were actual living beings. That's, that, that they, were, they were ascribing to the stars an actual, like, they were like, they were like real things. And so I didn't even know this until I started doing this study. Right there in uh, Genesis 1.14, God, when God creates the greater light, which is the sun, and the lesser lights, which are the stars, he says, and he called them, he says, they are signs. I don't know how many times I've read that. I missed that whole thing. They are signs. So if you're a Near Eastern person, you're going like, yes, they are signs that point to a, a different reality. So God's just using the language of Near Eastern uh, culture to help them understand that in the heavens, there's something else going on that meets the eye. And this is the divine council. These are the divine Elohims that God created and gave dominion and authority to rule over the heavens. So just like Adam and Eve were given dominion and authority to rule here on earth, there's a mirror thing that's happening, and the same thing is happening in the heavens. That is the biblical worldview of the spiritual world. And so in the Garden of Eden, for that, those, those, the chapter 1 and chapter 2, for a very short amount of time, there's this connection between heaven and earth. And God's created beings are ruling together. And this is beautiful symphony when everything is aligned. It's beautiful. But then in the story we know, we're usually very familiar with the, re the one rebellion of humans. 
but there was a dual rebellion. And in Genesis chapter 3, both types of creatures are found, and they are both rebellious, right? We have the serpent, and we have the humans. And the humans, in this twin rebellion, they wanted to rule the earth on their own terms. So they didn't want to rule the way God wanted them to rule. And the spiritual beings didn't want to represent God's presence and God's authority. They wanted to be worshipped. They didn't want the worship to go to Yahweh. They wanted the, the worship to go to them. And so they were proud and they wanted that for themselves. And can you believe it? When we read the, meet the snake, what does the snake say to Adam and Eve, the humans? He says, hey, you can be Elohim too. That was a temptation. And the humans chose to worship the serpent and align and believe the word of the serpent over the word of Yahweh. And so that is the twin rebellion that happens there uh, that we see evidence of in Genesis chapter 3. So, so all this to say, this is basically the, the canvas, the background of the scriptures, of the storyline of the Bible. And from Genesis 3 to the rest of the Bible, really all it is is a recapitulation of, those, of, of what I just, the story that I just told you. And then all of a sudden in Genesis uh, 11... There's, uh, you see the humans, and they want to, once again, after the flood, humans, once again, want to become like Elohims. And so they want to work together to build this tower to, to show the world that they are Elohims. And then all of a sudden, we read in the, in the, in the, in the prophets, and the prophets, I said, the prophet Isaiah, I forget, I think it's like chapter 12 or something like that, he all of a sudden is introducing this concept that, oh, behind the Tower of Babel, were the gods of Babylon that were actually inspiring and driving the humans to do that. And that, both of those things, all those things are connected. Okay? So, so, so as you read the Old Testament, just keep this framework in mind, and, and I think it will really begin to help you understand a lot of the things that are happening. Uh, pretty much the stars, anytime a star is mentioned in the Old Testament, it, it has a name, it's like a living being, okay? Now you know why that's, that's the connection there, right? They're, they're representing the Elohims. Okay, so, so that's the, this is what I just shared with you is the background, the spiritual background that Paul is assuming you understand when he's saying that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark, dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Our, 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 our struggles against the Elohims that are in the heavenly realms. The last thing I want to I point out real quick here is that Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against these Elohims of the spiritual dark world. That word for struggle there is the word that you would use to refer to a, uh, if you had to ever, not that you, we were ever going to have, this is going to happen to us, but if you ever had to like wrestle a bear with your bare hands, that's the word that you would use. To, that's, that's the struggle that Paul is talking about. So, so, so when we look at ancient warfare, there's three different types of warfare, right? You can have warfare with like where you're shooting the arrows at each other, right? There's a, there's a distance between you and the enemy. And then there's a type of warfare where you're sword fighting. And then there's a type of warfare when you're now like hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
And that is the most desperate type of warfare, right? Like, that, like life and death is on the line. You sh- if you're doing hand-to-hand combat, only one of you is going to walk out. That's the word, that deliberate word that Paul uses in this text, that we are in this hand-to-hand combat with the Elohims of the dark world. The picture is that in this war is a matter of life and death. So that's my point number one. That's who we are fighting. Now that we know who we're fighting, Paul turns to the question of then how should we then fight? How should we then fight? And so verses 11 and 13, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13, therefore, he says it twice, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Okay, so the question now here now is what is the armor of God? And I mean, this passage is such a popular passage that, I mean, every single type of denominational stripe, every time of, every, every, every church type uh, has their own stand of what this means. And there's thousands and thousands of pages that you cannot possibly read all of them. But at the end of the day, most, from my limited study, uh, most interpretations that I see of the armor of God uh, have to do, let me see here, okay, with, they try to connect the armor of God with like a Roman soldier, okay, and we all probably have seen, if you're in Sunday school or, I don't know, maybe church, you've, you've, you've heard sermons on this or, or lessons on this, trying to tie every single thing that Paul talks about here to something that you would see on a Roman soldier. But in 2020, uh, we not only did a study on spiritual warfare that helped us understand a little bit of this biblical worldview, we also, our community group, we spent almost a full year in the book of Isaiah. Uh, And I remember reading that, that book slowly in community and there were several passages where I was like, oh, man, that sounds like, that sounds like, like, the, like the armor of God, you know? And, and so we would read things like, uh, this is Isaiah 11. This is the passage that, that um, where it talks about, um, we, we preach this during, during Easter, that the prophecy that out of the root of Jesse, there's going to be this, this Messiah. And, and, and it paints this picture of like this warrior that's going to, uh, have final victory over evil, okay? And inside of that passage, you, you've read it, I'm sure. Uh, here's what we read. He will strike the earth. Okay, so it's like, a, like Jesus is like a warrior, a divine warrior with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And then we would read a little more and then by the time we got to like Isaiah 59, and, and there's also like a, a few other passages in Isaiah 52. I'm just going to give you, I don't have time to like go over all of it. But here's another passage directly referring to the Messiah as a warrior that is coming. And he says, the Lord looked and was displeased, displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So, so 
over and over, we would see all these pictures of this divine warrior that was, that was putting on this armor that sounds very much like the armor of God. So, again, I don't have time to show you all these things, but every single one of the pieces of the armor of God has a direct Old Testament correlation. And Paul is expecting that we also understand that. And basically, the key point here is that every single one of those pieces of armor is an attribute of the Messiah warrior. It's an attribute of Jesus Christ. So, so what Paul is doing here is he's drawing these armor pictures in the Old Testament. And he's saying, for this battle, you have to be like Christ. And so we have already heard sermons in Ephesians chapter 4. I think Matt's the one that preached the sermon that, about, hey, in light of the gospel, in light of everything that we just read in the first three chapters, put on Christ. Put on the attributes of Christ. Love, humility, kindness. Put on those things and put off everything else that is not of Christ. Put those things off. In uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, be therefore imitators of Christ. As dearly beloved children and live in love just as Christ so loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering. So this is good news. Now, why is this good news? And this is very important. The reason why this is good news is that Paul is not just telling us to put on this armor, to put on Christ, so that we can go out there and have a better chance of winning the battle. That would be very bad news. Okay? He's not saying, the battle, the victory has already been secure, right? Amen? Amen. And so, from the first page of the New Testament, if there's something that is clear in the whole Old Testament, is that neither in the heavenlies or in the terrestrial, there is anybody that can solve the problem. Heavenly beings are not going to solve the problem. They will not solve the problem. And humans, we know that. We're not going to solve the problem. And from page one, we have the perfect mixture of heavenly being and terrestrial being. The perfect one. And he has been sent by Yahweh to be this divine warrior that's going to turn all the forces of evil backwards. And he's going to destroy them all. Amen. And the crazy thing is, brothers and sisters, is that when Jesus gets to the cross as this warrior king sacrifice, he actually lays aside his armor. Wow. He goes to the cross naked. And Hunter, thank you for that point. That was in your paper. By the way, Hunter wrote a paper on this, and he gave it to me this week, and that's the point that I got from it. Super awesome, man. Jesus went to the cross naked and allowed the demonic forces of evil, these Elohims, to kill him. And they thought they were winning. They thought they were winning, that the tide was going to finally turn, and eternity was theirs for them to rule as Elohims. And they really thought they were going to do that. And we know the story, right? Because of his death, burial, and then he rose again. 
proving that he has all authority. What an amazing thing. Look at Colossians chapter 2. This is amazing. This is so key and pivotal. It says, Having been buried with him in baptism, we, you have also been raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us, is in us. He has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And this is the key right here. Disarming the rulers and authorities, he has made a public disgrace of all the Elohims, triumphing over them by the cross. So brothers and sisters, the reason why this is good news is because the victory has already been won. And what makes us different than every other religion. And what we have, the better story, what we have, the good news, is that every other religion, every other worldview that, has a, that, that desires to have a, an af, some kind of an afterlife, every other religion, what they do is they send military advisors for you. To kind of keep going with the metaphor here of battle, every other religion says military advisors. So, 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 so back in the ancient times, if you... Uh, you know, you pretty much lived in a state of war pretty much all the time. You were either defeating somebody or defending your territory. That was like literally every year, that was what it, that's what the picture was. And so if your king left out for battle, all right, he would, take, he would take his soldiers, his mighty men, and he would live behind the women, the children, the elderly, and maybe those who physically just couldn't fight. And so they would be gone for weeks, if not months, and you had no idea if you were back in the castle, back in the whatever you, the town that you lived, you had no idea if your king was winning or losing until somebody came from the battlefield. And you would know how things were depending on who the king sent. So if the king was losing the battle, you know how he would send? He would send a military advisor to come into the town, to go, okay, here's what we need to do. We're losing. The king is coming back. He's hightailing it back. We need to fortify that wall. Go and do it. You know, and he's, the military advisor is telling the city, the city what they need to do to have a shot at winning. That's what every religion says. Hey, if you want to have a shot after the afterlife, here are the, the list of things you need to do to have a shot at it. That is bad news. But the gospel is different. If the king was winning, he would send a good news messenger, a herald, to announce that the king has won the victory. And if you were a citizen of that town and you heard the news, all you have to do is now accept the good news. There's literally nothing you can do to affect what's happened already. The victory has already been secured on the battlefield. Yeah, there's nothing. And so that is why this is good news, brothers and sisters. And so, so here's, notice what the armor is. Look at verses uh, 14 and 17, and I'm almost done here. Paul says, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What are all of these things? 
All of these things are things that are already available to us through salvation. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the spirit. These are all privileges that we have in Christ. They're already ours. The moment we give our life to Jesus, this is true of us. So the question is then, why is Paul telling us to put on these things that are already ours? That's a legitimate question, right? Why is Paul saying, put on the armor of God? And the reason is, is that it is possible to have all those things. For all of those things to be true of you, and you still don't know that this is true of you. So for example, in Ephesians 3, I forget who preached on that, right? Paul is saying, we, we all know that we're dearly beloved sons of, of God. That God loves us. I mean, like if, if, if I give you a test, does God love you? I think I, 100% of you would probably say, like, God loves me. We know that in our heads. But still, Paul has to say in Ephesians 3, like, hey, my prayer for you is that you, that you would really know how deep and how wide is the love of God for you. That's true, you're loved, but Paul is saying, like, I want you to really know it. And I think putting the armor of God is similar to that. It's like, it's like going deeper into the gospel, going deeper into understanding our true identity as a beloved son of God, to really know it in our hearts. And so um, what I really want to finish with is, is really what, what are those, what are your instincts what are your reflexes, your spiritual reflexes? And really, uh, this week, pay attention to those. Every day, there's tons of little scrimmages going on. Again, because of our Western world, we, we actually go through, we can go through this entire week without even realizing that there's spiritual scrimmages happening every single day. So let's talk about what Josh did last week. If you may have a boss that you don't like, and on Monday morning, he or she is going to ask you to do something that you're like, just going to drive you crazy. That's a scrimmage right there and then. That is a scrimmage. It's a spiritual battle. What, what, how are you going to react? What's your reflex? And how often do we fail? So this is why Paul is saying, put on the armor of God. Put on the gospel. And, and this is why in Hebrews chapter 3, and I'll end with this, uh, Paul, uh, the, the, the author of Hebrews says, hey, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart that forsakes the living God, but exhort one another each day that none of you may be hardened by sin's deception. So, so, so there's also this corporate side of putting the armor of God together. And this is why we, we believe in community, that, that none of us can just do this on our own, that, that God has designed for us not to be solo spiritual warriors, but to be collectively a church. That's together fighting these Elohims around our city and in our own lives and in our families. And so in our community groups, when, when you do check-ins, when you're talking to, 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 to your brother and sister over dinner or whatever, like we have a responsibility to exhort one another. When we see that one of our brothers or sisters is, is struggling and believing the gospel, it's our responsibility to help them put on the armor of God. To, to, to share the gospel with them, to rehearse the gospel and say, I'm praying for you that you would understand how loved you are. I'm going to fight for you. And so this divine warrior who, while he was naked, died for us, all of a sudden turns around and now gives us his armor. Amen. He gives us his armor so that we would not be touched by the enemy. 
that he's already defeated. What a loving God we have. Amen? Thank you.